0: You know, I've got um, I've got a new Murphy's law that I sort of made up myself, and it's, uh, it says never heckle the man with the microphone unless you are the man on the sound desk. <laughs> 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 right, brothers and sisters in Christ, we carry on this week towards the. End of the final chapter of James, chapter five. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there now. Um, last Sunday we covered verses one to six, which spoke to us regarding the behaviour of the unrepentant rich man, and that was, I hope, a warning to us all. This section follows directly on from that, which which was although it was specifically named at non believe as, as a warning, while well, it also carried Valuable advice for us as Christians. Now, in this section, James continues the theme of consoling Christians persecuted by wealthy merchants and officials, and at the same time, counsels them in the appropriate behaviour of a believer. And I believe it is a gracious state he proposes, and worthy of us studying, but most of all, living in it. So, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Let's just pray quickly. Father, once again we come before the richness of your word. Father, I pray that that richness would not be wasted on us today, that it would sink into us and transform us into the people that you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by now, I hope that we're getting used to the idea of seeing transitional words like therefore as... This section starts. Now last we read about the fate awaiting the man who turns away from God's provision and instead spends his labours on building up wealth here on earth at the expense of everybody around him. And we saw that it wasn't going to be a pretty end. So, this is him, James is saying. You can almost imagine him holding up a digital photo of someone wealthy saying, well, you don't want to be like him. Instead, therefore, you as a Christian should be like this. Well, let's say that you and I or this very situation. We work hard for a wealthy man, we perhaps don't earn much, and he isn't very nice to us. Well, what will we usually do? Well, my experience would be that there will be a lot of complaining and scandal in the smoker room, and at least thoughts, if not open discussion or even action on ways to get even. I mean, after what we hear uh, in the modern world is, don't get mad, get even. That's modern advice, isn't it? But it isn't behaviour that pleases or glorifies God, so we shouldn't be doing it for a variety of reasons, as we will shortly see. We are called instead to be patient, and I'm not talking about the waiting for a bus for five minutes sort of patience here, but long-term measured patience. And the example given is that of a farmer who waits many, many months for his harvest, not knowing what sort of crop he's going to get, if maybe a flood or a drought or maybe pestilence is coming his way. But he just waits nonetheless less and he trusts that he will get a good harvest. James, I think, uses this agricultural example for two reasons. Firstly, well many of his, his audience would have been farmers or associated with farming, so it would have made a very understandable picture for them. And secondly, Scripture twice describes God himself as a farmer. First of all, he's the vine dresser who tends the vine, which is both Christ and those who abide in him, and we read about this in John fifteen. Okay, so that's the first example. And the second is that God actually farms the field of his church where it is his work that produces the perfect harvest. And we read about this in 1 Corinthians 3. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom he believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So God farms both the individual and the congregation. His eye is both on the single plant and the whole field. Don't you think we have an awesome... God, because not only does he have a very specific plan for each one of us, and he listens to us, and he responds to our individual prayers, but he also weaves each strand of a person's life into the greater tapestry of his work for the whole world, for his good and for his glory. And if God himself is an example of patience, then we must be sure to do the same. Now, as Kiwis, we are used to a damp and green land where, armed with the pump and some trusty roundup, we are usually trying to stop something from growing. When we see on the television pictures of Israel, which is largely a dry and arid sort of place, we find it hard to understand how anyone could do any farming there. And this makes it difficult for us, at least, to understand why agriculture would be used as an example What we need to know is that this modern state is actually the consequence of many, many years of overproduction of crops, of wartime pillage, and other changes that have come about. But things were different in biblical times. And we get a really good picture of what it used to be like in Deuteronomy um, when the Israelites first arrived. And it says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Well, that's not the picture that we have today. So, you know, what was it like then? Well, I found some quite interesting stuff about that. Um, It turns out that the countries Irregular land surface, well, it offered a very wide varieties of soil, um, often fertile but sometimes shallow and rocky. So at the time of James's writing, between those different soil types and the big changes in elevation, it was possible to provide many varieties of crops. Some examples, the coastal plains provided the most productive area where even bananas and oranges flourished. The land of the plains supported every kind of cultivated fruit, and vegetable. The Lower Jordan Valley provided one of the most naturally fertile growing areas in the world. Can you believe that? And its tropical climate produced abundant fruit. The hill country of Judah offered excellent grazing pastures and natural terraces where the soil had built up behind rock walls. The plateau of Perea, east of the Jordan, contained soil from eroded lava beds that made it exceedingly fertile. And decayed limestone enriched the soil around Bashan, making it a vast natural wheat field. Now, when we see all this, we realise how important farming was and how widely and well understood a farming-based example would have been. Now, if we um, look back to verse 7, it refers to the early and the latter rain. Now, we have to remember that Palestine is in the northern hemisphere, okay, and uh, that means everything's opposite to here. Yeah. <laughs> so that means that they have a summer, a five-month rainless summer from May to October. Okay. And if the next lot of rains that comes along in autumn um, doesn't, they don't rain very well. Well, you know, the farmers in big trouble. So those early rains that the verse is talking about are the first autumn showers, and the latter rains were the last spring showers. And between them, there was a bit of rain in January. And this was very important in the farmer's growing cycle because those early rains prepared the soil for the seed. Okay, Stuff got growing. There was a bit of rain through in January. And then the latter rains came along and they filled out the crops for harvest. And the pattern of rainfall, of course, dictated the way a season would develop. Because steady rains coming at critical times provided better crops than heavy, intermittent rainfall. And what this meant for the farmer is that he had to really be patient and have trust in God if he wasn't to live with a great deal of anxiety between those early rains and those latter rains. So, James has painted this powerful image of the patience of the farmer in the minds of his audience. And I'm guessing that it would need to be a really strong picture because we know that his listeners were under some very deep persecution from the wealthy merchants and landowners. And we've just read about it in the last few verses. Now, imagine how you would feel if you worked hard all day only to be cheated of your wage and then to go you know, and look up at your employer's house and he's living in absolute luxury. I reckon you'd probably need a bit of persuading to be patient. (laughs) And this is why James points to the stakes for the game, which is nothing less than the Lord's return. After all, what could be more important than that, and what would provide more incentive for patience than the sure knowledge of the believer's reward and the sinner's punishment? I want to make it clear, though, when I'm talking about the sinner's punishment... We shouldn't be sitting there going, (laughs) just you wait till judgment day. Okay, because that's just, it's not appropriate and it's not our place and neither is our calling. What is all of those things is to love the Lord with all our heart and our soul and our mind and to love our neighbour as ourselves, even if he is a wealthy landowner. So not only does the reminder of the day of the Lord's return console us that God will deal justly with those who oppress us but it also reminds us that we have a race to run until then and we won't be running in the right direction if we are not focused on the course. And this is why James says in verse 8 you also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now we're going to do a bit of Greek. The Greek word used for patient is the word makrothumio and it means literally long-tempered. Okay? It's different in meaning though to the word hypomone which we've encountered earlier in James chapter 1. Now, back then we said my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Okay? In that case it produces hypermonē. This time we're talking about you also be patient, you also be macrothumio. All right. Now, there are some differences here. Now, the testing of your faith produces hupermone, which means patiently dealing with trying circumstances, whilst macrothumio relates to practicing the same thing, but with trying people. So James is being very specific in his advice, and we can see this section's relationship to the one before it, and we will see the one following when we do our next sermon. Since we are in this Greek phase, let's also look at the word that's rendered establish, or perhaps in your t- translation it might actually say strengthen. Now, it's a, it's a very deep word, and uh, it's the word sterizo. And another place where we see it used, which will give us a really good idea of what it means, is in Luke 9.51. Okay, and, it, and it describes Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem despite his knowledge that humiliation and torture and death awaited him there. So what this word uh, demonstrates is this absolute resoluteness and courage and commitment to stay the course no matter how trying the conditions might be. And what's also really interesting is that one of the meanings of its root word, the word that this this is derived from, it means to prop up. So, in effect, James is saying that we can prop up our ability to deal with trying people by holding on to the knowledge that we can look forward to the day of Christ's return. We also see consistency in the Holy Spirit's message as expressed here by, by James when we recall his earlier admonition of the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. After all, patience shouldn't be an unstable state, should it? Now, many of you will know that my sometimes peculiar sense of humour has amongst its foundation stones a great love for the work of Monty Python. Oops, a bit early here. one of their skits olympiad, an event held traditionally at- one of their skits is called the silly olympiad and it includes that great race 100 yards for people with no sense of direction okay now they say that a picture tells a thousand words so here we go to Munich for the 27th City Olympiad, an event held traditionally every 3.7 years, which this year has brought together competitors from over 4 million different countries. And uh, here we are at the start of the first event of the afternoon, the second semi-final of the 100 yards for people with no sense of direction. Uh, I'll just give you the competitors, lane 1, Skolomowski of Poland, lane 2, Salomatique of France, lane 3, Grobovich of the United States. Next to him, Drabble of Trinidad, next to him Fernandez of Spain, and in the outside lane, Borman of Brazil. was fun, wasn't it? Okay. Okay. Now, he does go on the same vein for some time. And uh, while it's really funny, let's try to see that as a picture of our own lives when we try to live without any fixed purpose. Okay? We're going to run here, and we're going to run there, using up lots of energy, and probably not even reaching the finish line. If by some chance... We do find ourselves there, but it's going to have taken a whole lot longer and it's going to have been much more difficult than it should have been. On the other hand, if we live, as James says, with our whole purpose locked and focused on the return of the Lord, then we're going to break that tape and we're going to win the victor's spoils with the least amount of bother. Of course, there's no question that we will have to strive And we will have to exert ourselves to run the race. And there are going to be some obstacles to get over. But I ask, why make it more difficult than it has to be? A straight line is still the shortest route. So let's be sure to take time on the start line to be clear of where we are going and check our direction constantly during the race. Be focused on the return of the Lord. Now, in the same way that a lack of patience is a normal and understandable human reaction to trying circumstances, we also know that grumbling and backbiting are too. And so did James. So, he moves quickly to address these as well. And he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, this word rendered grumble here, it carries some sense of both complaining to others about difficulties or at other times blaming others for your own difficulties but in in either event it sort of has this bitter and resentful spirit about this so we have to understand this instruction in two ways first of all we shouldn't be going around saying John Rowland is ugly and mean sorry John you were there Secondly, we must not be the kind of people who are always complaining about life, the universe, and everything, all the time, and it's never our fault. It's always somebody else's fault. If we think that no one is watching our grumbling with interest, then we are sadly mistaken, because God is watching us all the time. And as the verse suggests, His judgment is near. And while that will be catastrophic for the non-believer, well, Christians mustn't think there are no consequences for our actions here on earth because 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that both parties can expect a review of what we have done. And it says, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And if we continue with the example that we previously used of running the race, it's though we were doing so um, in front of a judge who was constantly um, adding or removing from the winner's purse, depending on our conduct in the race. You know, So if you're running along and you try to Elbow the guy in front of you, or maybe give him a bit of an ankle tap so he falls down. Well, the judge is going to notice, and he's going to take stuff away from from your purse. So, if you carry on doing that, by the time you get to the end, you might win, and the record book might declare you as the winner. But there's going to be no cup on the mantelpiece. Okay, and that's the that's the point of this: is that um, as Christians, we can't expect to do bad things and not expect to be judged for them. You know, there is there is a cup promised for our mantelpiece if we if we stay the course. So, if we run the race straight and true whilst encouraging our fellow runners, well, our reward will be great. And that's got to be a good pattern for life. James next continues his argument by holding up the prophets as an example of the right attitude. Here are some people you might respect, he says, because they have had a special relationship with God. Well, see how they handle things. He writes in verse 10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Now, from our perspective, it might seem that the prophets had a pretty cool life because they had all that direct access to God and so on. But we often forget that they endured an enormous amount of suffering as well. And there are a lot of scriptures that demonstrate this, but I want to read from Mark 12, starting in verse 1. He says, "...then he began to speak to them in parables." A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place with a wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vinedressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vinedressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vinedressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another servant. And at them he threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine-dressers said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Of course, This parable is speaking of how God sent many prophets to speak the truth to Israel, but they were all rejected and killed, even the very last one, when God sent his son Jesus. So being a prophet was by no means a cruisy job. The fact that they spoke in the name of the Lord did not ensure universal acceptance of them or their message. In fact, I'm sure that it was a prophet who was the first messenger to be shot. Moreover, the words they brought could well be a reprimand for a king who held the power of life and death over them, or condemnation to a mob who would just as easily crush them underfoot. And despite all of these drawbacks, God's prophets continued to faithfully bring his word to the people, whatever the personal cost. I think James chose very well in his example, since we too should be persevering in this way, in our lives, as an example for Christ. That is what we are called to do. Perhaps it is worth noting too, the connection here between suffering and patience, because the two are almost inextricably linked. If we are going to be patient then it must be in the knowledge that we will face up to suffering of some kind. So really, we just have to take that famous cup of concrete and harden up. But that kind of hardness, it it can't be that hopeless and unpleasant kind. It shouldn't be a kind of spiky armour that turns all others away, but rather it should be that hardness that is an unwillingness to compromise on the standards God has set us. Scripture tells us without suffering we will not even learn patience. Suffering must come first. Romans 5.3 says this. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And we can see in this verse, um, albeit with a a bit more detail, the same chain of character development that James is speaking about. That we ought to see in hard times um, the work of sanctification that God is doing for us while we look forward to the rest that we will enjoy in heaven. To return to the prophets... One would generally assume that a body of men and women who were so persecuted would only be worthy of our pity. But the reality is just the opposite. The Old Testament prophets were respected and honoured. Their special relationship with God might have brought them trouble while they lived, but it brought them a great deal of recognition afterwards. And it seems to me that this is a kind of picture of the Christian's life too. We also must endure persecution. We must be patient in adversity, loving when it is least expected, and obedient to God even when it is frightening. We will find difficulties in living the way that we are called to by the Lord. These things won't make our lives pleasant, but they will build for us a reward when we go to heaven. So James is not being silly when he says in verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. His intention, of course, is to make sure that we don't get so caught up in the passion of the moment that we're living in that we forget about the end. Where are we going? We're going to heaven. He gives us motivation to carry on when things are hard by looking forward with hopeful anticipation for the fulfilment of God's promises. James knows that by nature humans are suspicious and we are most likely to believe what our own senses have confirmed. Thus he next says, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now the story of Job was very well known and it was a very popular story amongst the Jews. He of course was a man who endured sufferings of the kind I pray it would never afflict anyone ever again. He was directly and deliberately attacked by Satan. He lost his health. He lost his children, his wealth and his reputation. He was a wreck, and he was as down and out as you possibly could be. And as a consequence of this, he even began to feel that he'd lost his connection with God. and I, I suspect for him that that was the most painful thing of all. Well, his friends came to see him as well, but um, they didn't come to console and assist him. They came to accuse him. And even his wife, well, she wasn't very helpful either because she just, she constantly encouraged him to give up. Now, through all of this, Job behaved in a thoroughly human way, one we can identify with, because he kicked and he moaned and he struggled and he questioned and he occasionally defied. But we are told that he never ever sinned or blamed God. In chapter 13 verse 15 he says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Imagine. It's just amazing. Job demonstrates great patience and trust in the Lord through the darkest of days. His story is one we can understand because he is just like us. He isn't some kind of biblical superman. Though we may not recognize him at the beginning of the story, we can see by the end that God accomplishes all of his purposes through Job's struggles. Satan is defeated and God is glorified. Job's faith is strengthened And in the end, he is physically blessed beyond what he had ever had before. Money, family, livestock, and a long life, which I'm sure are things that any man would wish to have. The Lord is indeed compassionate and merciful, as James says. And this, I feel, allows me to finish thus. QED. Now, we lost our overheads? There we go. QED stands for the Latin phrase Quad Erat Demonstrandum. And it means that which was to be demonstrated. Now QED has a very specific purpose. It's traditionally placed at the end of a mathematical proof or a philosophical argument. And I'm going to give you the, the perfect defini- the definition here which sounds like a real mouthful. Okay? When that which was specified in the beginning and in the setting out has been exactly restated as the conclusion of the demonstration. Did everybody understand that? There will be a test. No. Okay. It's sort of a flash way of saying, I would prove this, said I would prove this, and I have. Okay? It's very simple. Thus it signals the completion of the proof. Although Latin, it's actually of Greek origin. And what's very interesting is when we translate translate from Greek to English rather than Latin to English, we get a slightly different result. It then reads, precisely what was required to be proved. Isn't this what James has done with his example of Job? Because James has proved the value of patience to the believer. It seems to me then that we would be well advised to practice it. As I said at the beginning, it is a gracious and worthy state let us pray father we are such busy people and the technology that we have at hand brings us things so quickly and yet Lord, we have no patience. And the society that we're in even suggests that patience is a bad thing. And Lord, we can see from your word thats that it is something you would really like us to learn to have. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest with us and deal with us in the matter of patience, Lord. That we would learn this wonderful skill, and that it would be a witness for Your glory in the world, and show the people around us that Christians have something special, that our God is to be admired. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Tim, I thank you.